0: Hey, this is Steph Cousins. I'm the global co-CEO of Talent Beyond Boundaries. If you're wanting to learn how to embrace change and navigate through disruption as a leader, then listen to the Leadership is Changing podcast with my good friend, Dennis Giannoutsis.
1: and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. I believe we don't have enough effective leaders in the world today, and if we can get the leaders to step up and lead change, then they can inspire real change. Hey, listeners, it's now time to adapt in our fast-moving world, and I have a wonderful guest with me today, her name's Stephanie Cousins, and Steph worked for more than 15 years in the not-for-profit sector, promoting human rights and sustainable development causes. Steph is currently global co-CEO of Talent Beyond Boundaries, a non-profit on a mission to enable refugees and other displaced people to secure jobs overseas and migrate on the basis of their skills to secure their futures. Prior to that, Steph led advocacy and external affairs at Amsty International Australia and held several senior leadership positions at Oxfam Australia and Oxfam International. In 2017, she was awarded a Churchill Fellowship to research innovative refugee admission programs across six countries. Now, she wrote about her findings, and we'll give this in the show notes at www.makerefugee.org, a website created to showcase how governments, citizens, and other actors can better work together to welcome refugees into our communities. Steph has a Bachelor of Arts, a Bachelor of Public Policy and Management, and a Master's of Public and International Law from the University of Melbourne. She is passionate about creating innovative solutions to human rights and development challenges. Steph, a massive welcome to you to the show.
0: Hi, Dennis. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thank you. Great to have you here. Now, listen, I've given, of course, a a brief introduction to you and to your background. Tell me, is there anything else you'd like to share about your background?
0: Yeah, so I'm based here in Melbourne, Australia, and as you said, I'm co-global co-CEO of Talent Beyond Boundaries, which is a really innovative, exciting startup organization in the nonprofit sector. So, a bit of a change for me coming from larger nonprofits. So, I love the the topic of your podcast because I think I've really experienced this change in leadership that comes from moving from larger organizations to smaller organizations. But yeah, I think that's that's probably enough. As you say, very passionate about human rights and social development issues and feeling very fortunate to be working for an, an organization where I can put those passions to direct use.
1: Excellent. So listeners, I'm really looking forward to this conversation about the questions I've got around leadership and leadership has changed. Now, the first question I've got here for you, Steph, is how did you get into leadership?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So It's funny because you can be into leadership at quite junior positions in an organization sometimes, I think. And for me, I got into leadership, I would say, by doing projects myself. So I actually used to, when I was in my early 20s, I ran a film festival, co-ran a film festival with my now husband. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's actually how we met. And we, yeah, we used to run a film festival across Melbourne that ran for a few years and was just like, you know, totally not to do with my university or to do with, you know, a proper job or anything like that. But it was leadership in the sense that we did everything ourselves. We built up a team, you know, we we kind of like created this thing from the ground up. And I think that gave me, that really hooked me on really entrepreneurship, I think, like the idea that you can build something yourself and you can corral people around it and you can, you know, build a team and be part of a team and, and get something off the ground like that. So it really started there, but then in my mid-20s, I guess I started working for Oxfam and I was really lucky at Oxfam to have a manager and mentor who really allowed me to have a lot of space to make decisions and to take on big projects and you know, to make mistakes and it wasn't a big deal. And he just backed me completely and supported me, you know, to have that freedom and gave me one particularly large project, which when I look back and I think about my age and my experience at the time was like a really big project to, to give someone like me and it worked, we pulled it off. But basically it was this project called Refugee Realities, which was a simulated refugee experience that, that the idea of it was to give Australians a sense of like why do people flee? And we worked with about 20 refugees who were living in Australia to kind of understand their stories and to pull their stories into the simulation. So it was kind of part theatre, part education project. And we had about 8,000 visitors come through the site where it was on. We had 200 volunteers. We had probably 20 partner organisations that were part of it. And that was really kind of my my first big experience of leadership. I think having to manage so many people and and you know take on a level of risk that if it if it failed, it would have would have been a bit of a big deal. But yeah, I think that that was really. I was just so lucky to have a manager who was willing to back me and support me to do that at a pretty early stage in my career.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, managers that do do that with their staff to back them and you know uh, it's really wonderful to see. What do you think? I mean, managers who are leaders who do that. I mean, how do they take that risk? What What do they see in someone else to allow them to say, "Okay, let's give this person a chance"? What do you think goes through their mind?
0: Yeah, I have thought about this so many times. And actually, my my manager now, or my the the co-founder of Talent Beyond Boundaries, who really got me into t- Talent Beyond Boundaries, um, his name's John Cameron. His his mantra is, "You hire on potential." and you look for potential. And I just think it must be a gut thing in a way, but it's also probably a, a personality thing that you can tolerate risk. And it's actually okay if you give, you know, responsibility to someone who's not fully tried and tested because you're okay with the, you know, the flip side, which is it may not work perfectly well. But I think, yeah, hiring on potential, I, I really, I've taken that mantra to heart because I think that also is a really important way of looking for people who, may not have like the typical profile or the, you know, when we think about trying to build diverse teams, for example, you've got to look at people who maybe have been marginalised or they haven't had access to all of the, you know, like core resources and supports that would help get them into a position where they're like ticking all of the boxes for a leadership position. So you really do need to look for potential and how you nurture that potential in order to hire people from different backgrounds as well and not kind of cookie-cutter replacements of the same white leaders basically to put it, to put it that way. Yeah. So I think there's something in that in, in managers that can handle the risk and and look for potential, not just looking for someone to fill a need to take the work off their plate or to, to obviously do a job that's, that's highly needed, but to do it in a way that you give the person space to grow into the role as well.
1: It's really amazing how you see people. and I work with a lot of executives and senior leaders and I talk to them about a, them and their careers, where they're going next, but also them bringing in other people as well. And you know, they look to hire people based on a degree and you know, based on this and based on that. And the, and the resume doesn't always reflect the person. It just reflects some words and some titles and things like that. And it's just like, you no, know, get to know the person. That's why I always say to people, the power of your network and their network's network is so strong because if somebody comes to me and says, hey, Steph, you got to hire Steph because of A, B, C, and D, and, you know, Steph and that, and they're giving their own backing about it, that is so more powerful than than anything else, right? And it's just huge.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, this is, you know, th- that is just the, the rule 100%, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But there's so many bad things that come from that, you know, like that, that, that's why Talent Beyond Boundaries exists in a way because there's a whole, not a cohort, there's literally 25 million refugees around the world who are stuck in countries where they can't legally work for the most part because they're seen as, you know, a drain on society, you know, they, they're kind of treated as second-class citizens in a way. And it's, yeah, it's this crazy situation because there's so many talented professional people in that group So many people with skilled trades, you know, experience working in different fields that they could make a contribution, but they're just not seen like that. And they don't have the networks necessarily. And that's really like Talent Beyond Boundaries is about trying to connect those people with employers in other countries so that we can actually profile them and say, these are good people to hire, you know, like, honestly, trust us, we've met with these people And, yeah, it does make it really, really hard if you don't have the networks and you're in that kind of marginalised position, it can make it really hard to break through. And I think that's that's a very important kind of function that an organisation like Talent Beyond Boundaries plays. And there's lots of other organisations doing it, that kind of work as well, trying to create the network for people who don't automatically have that to tap into.
1: You know, and I think about my dad in particular, he comes from Greece, right? And he came to New Zealand, I think, just on 61 years ago. And it was just after the wars and so forth. And, you know, as a young guy, he came here, didn't speak English, came here. But the only thing, the reason, I mean, one of the reasons he came here was to be with his father's brother, who was happened to be oh. here, who came here with him. There was nobody here from, from that community and so forth. And you know, I know they're not refugees. However, they were migrants that came across and um, it wasn't easy for them. And, you know, the stories that he shares with me, and but I see a lot of Australia, a lot of New Zealand have been built on refugees, on migrants and people coming in and, and seeing what they've done. It's just been an amazing story that each and every single one of them will actually have to to share.
0: Absolutely.
1: Maybe there's a new podcast we could start. Yeah. You know?
0: <laughs> exactly. Oh, absolutely. There's so many stories, and I think you're right. You know, the migrant experience and the refugee experience is very similar in that respect. That you know, you're really you're building up again. Maybe people have got some connections in the country, but you know, compared to where they've come from and the kinds of networks and supports and that even just like the local knowledge that you have from your yeah. own country. You know, it's. I can't think of anything more. You need to be very resilient to be a migrant or a refugee, I think, and to make it through and to, you know, make a go of it. And I think we find um, it must be a very resilience building experience as well because so many people of refugee and migrant backgrounds, as you say, do really well and have made a huge impact and contribution to the countries that they've settled in.
1: Yep, very much so. So, Steph, now this person can be alive or from history. So who's your favourite leader and why?
0: So I have to go for people I know because I just feel like, you know, there's obviously so many amazing leaders in, in history who have made like pivotal kind of impacts on the world, but I always find it's hard to know what they're like in real life. Mm. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the public persona versus the private persona is, you know, who knows really kind of what. So, yeah, I'd say in my own experience, yeah, it's really hard to, it's really hard to choose. I'm not very good at like putting a marker down on my favorite of anything, but, <laughs> but I would say I've been really, really lucky with the leaders that I've worked for in my career most recently. And I mentioned John before John Cameron, who's a co-founder of Talent Beyond Boundaries is just like an incredibly inspiring, impressive person. And um, I'm constantly learning from him and really like probably the reason why is his instinctual yeah, his instincts are really good and he follows his instincts and doesn't necessarily follow the typical rules. But, you know, he has an ethical paradigm, I think, within which he makes decisions. And he goes with his instincts within that paradigm. And I think that that is a good way of operating because it means you're always kind of having an ethical approach. But you're not getting caught up in bureaucracies and getting caught up in knots around like how to do things within the rules. <laughs> and actually, you know, my previous boss before before John, Helen Zoki, she was a CEO of, of Oxfam Australia until relatively recently. And she wasn't my direct manager, but definitely a mentor and someone I spent a lot of time with. And she had a very similar approach, like a very ethical paradigm within which she made decisions and how she operated. But within that, you know, she was very like yeah, she was just a genuine, honest kind of mission driven person, but not caught up in rules and like protocols. And, you know, she would, she would treat people in the organization from like the most junior levels, right up to the most senior levels with absolute respect and openness and, and, you know, willingness to take their advice and input. And yeah, I, I think that was both, both of those leaders have been really inspiring to me
1: yeah wonderful. And I think the other thing with and coupling with that, I, I presume that they have all been consistent in that approach as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can think of like the 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 lessons that both of them have imparted on me have been lessons that they've returned to many times when I'm kind of facing like, what do I do in this situation? yeah, whether it's the like John's kind of mantra about hiring on potential or, like staying focused within within what you're trying to achieve, like don't get completely waylaid with all of the, like, you know, this is one of the difficulties I've found with being a being a CEO. Or co- I'm a co-CEO, which we can maybe talk about. But, um, but, you know, it can be difficult sometimes when you're working with really big issues, really big problems and challenges and you want to tackle everything and you just actually can't. You have to have, you've got to have focus and you've got to be willing to delegate. And, yeah, so... Anyway, they've been fantastic at kind of guiding me through some of the the challenges of taking on the the more senior leadership position I'm now in.
1: Okay. So the co-CEO, do you want to talk about it now or is it going to come up and maybe one of the other questions?
0: I don't know. I think it might come up, but, yeah, I think you, yeah.
1: Well, what is a co-CEO? I mean, you know, is that confusing for people? How does it work?
0: Yeah, so now now I'm thinking of your questions. One of them was about what's changing in, in leadership or what has changed. And I think the co-CEO arrangement speaks to what I think I'm observing about leadership expectations and style in at least the nonprofit sector, but probably broadly. And that's a decentralization and an expectation that there's less focus on hierarchy, more focus on building a cohesive team and a co-CEO structure, we, we've just found it really, really great. So my co-CEO, her name is Madeline Holland. She's based in New York and I'm here based in, in Melbourne, Australia. So we've got a couple of hours crossover each day and, you know, the rest of it, we're, we're, we're basically a 24-hour CEO.
1: <laughs> so, so almost like almost like follow the sun, right? So there's always exactly. going to be someone there There's a CEO there.
0: Always yeah? someone on deck, exactly. So we kind of hand the baton over It's been great for crisis management because you can literally like, right, I'll take this up until this point and then I'll hand the baton to you and, you know, you keep going. Our team is global and we've got people in the Middle East, in the UK, in Canada, in the US, in Australia. So we we need global, you know, coverage for, for leadership. So it's worked for that. But it's also, I think, really importantly, kept a relatively flat structure, because it yep. means that, you know, we've got two kind of CEO reporting lines and then the leadership team underneath us, which which we're all, you know, a cohesive leadership team together. It means that, you know, you, you kind of can't get into a position where you're dictatorial when you're a co-CEO because you, for one, have to agree, you know, you've got to be on the same page with your co-CEO and you've got to be willing to kind of adjust your position and compromise where, where necessary so that kind of sends a good signal to the rest of the organization that this is how really everybody should be operating. Not that we need every decision to be a consensus decision, that's not realistic, but certainly there's an expectation that we're here to collaborate rather than dictate to each other about how it's going to be. And I think, yeah, that really does encourage good decision-making, accountable decision-making and you know, proper consultation to lead into the decisions. So yeah, I think that... You know, I, I it's it's a structure that I've seen more in um, in the corporate and nonprofit sector. It's still pretty rare, but it's happening more and more. And I think it also speaks to just a general expectation now that you know decentralized leadership structures can be very effective. I mean, we've seen them be very effective in campaigning. Certainly, you know, if you look at like the big movements that have taken off, like Black Lives Matter, for example, that has a decentralized leadership structure. It's not like a CEO of that. You know, like that. And that's how a lot of movements have really kind of taken off and, and made huge impacts. So particularly in the social and you know, the nonprofit sphere, looking mm. at that decentralized leadership approach is definitely a, a positive. So in addition to having the co-CEO arrangement, we our country directors, so we've got a director um, of each country that we're operating in, they also have a large degree of empowerment to lead in their market. And our leadership team is very much a collaborative leadership team. Um, and we we hold on to that very strongly. Yeah.
1: That's great. So I think, you know, that's probably answering the question about leadership is changing and what does it mean for you. I think it's it's really seeing a different kind of model, not really that hierarchy, but it's more of a collaborative approach and things like that, so, which is good. And I love it too. There's, you know, there's the real meaning of a tag team, right? Bank tag, you're, you're up now. You, you go yeah. ahead with it, which is brilliant. Uh, exactly. Great to see. So how has your business or industry changed and sort of what pressures that put on you or the team?
0: Yeah, I think... I mean, it's really hard to answer that question without talking about COVID, <laughs> because I think COVID's had such a massive impact on mm. on our work. I mean, we work in migration; it, all, the whole nonprofit sector has been affected, obviously, because it's affected fundraising and you know fi- financial stability. But probably the biggest thing for us has been we were already a very remote team and a global team, so it's just kind of turbocharged that approach and we've had to, and really we're in the process of now thinking through like, what do we do for culture moving towards like such a high level of remote interaction? Like we haven't, you know, seen each other face to face for a really long time. And that's actually something, you know, we're doing a bit of thinking about at the moment. Like how do we, cause we, we do have a really close knit team and we've got a really collegiate environment that, that we work in, but it is, you know, it's something you really have to hold on to that I think so tightly when you are not having the face time at all, that could be you know a, a bit of a tricky thing. So like figuring out other ways to really celebrate the wins and to support each other and to you know to give each other the the kudos and the support that is easier done when you're face to face and in direct interaction. So yeah, I think that's that's something that we're really working through at the moment in terms of yeah something that's been really pushed by COVID but probably is an issue that we need to grapple with anyway as we grow as a team yeah
1: yeah yeah definitely and the pandemic has really turbocharged as you said a lot of those things and, I, and I've been doing some uh, events for leaders to help them through this because they're leading to virtually and you know, they're getting very tired physically and mentally emotionally tired and then how do they look after themselves but then how do they help with the transition back into the office or then back out again if there's another lockdown and, and so it's been very hard and for a lot of them they they find the transition hard, the transition of, you know, when a lot of people drive into work, get a train, a bus, and so forth, we have that transition period into work and then back home again. Well, for yeah. today, people go from their bedroom to the to the bedroom because they've got the office desk in their bedroom or in the kitchen area or the lounge, and then so they don't have that transition. They don't
0: have that. You know what, though? My number one thing for that is I have to go for a walk in the morning or a run yep. or, right. like, get – out of the house i have to do like a go out and then come back in otherwise i completely agree it's like your your work and your life are just mushed together completely and yeah that can be quite stressful i find the days i don't get around to going for a walk or doing something like that to set the day i end the day a lot more stressed than um the days that i've had that kind of set time
1: yeah yeah definitely you definitely can yeah for sure yeah, yeah. Hey, Steph, if, if there was one thing you could change in business as a leader today, what would it be?
0: So again, I want to say like 100 things to this question, but really reflecting on it, and this is, this is like coming to this question as a mum, I've got two kids, one a baby and nearly two-year-old and a just started high school child. And I honestly think having access to childcare, if every woman had access to childcare and every man had access to childcare and paid parental leave and it can't just be the women, it has to be the men as well because otherwise you don't share that, that's probably the number one challenge I have in leadership is balance and managing that balance because, you know, it, it's just really hard to afford childcare and to, you know, there's very few organisations that, that kind of support the maternity and paternity leave needs that parents have. And honestly, that would be the number one thing I would change about the whole sector is to provide um not, not the whole sector, the whole business community and nonprofit communities for employers and governments to get together and figure out how a way, you know, to provide that that the provide for the childcare needs and paid parental leave needs of all parents. I think it would make a huge difference.
1: Yeah, wow, that'd be awesome. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Now- <laughs> So so talking about employees here because, you know, you and I have probably both been employees in the past. We know employees and so forth. We've been talking a lot about the leadership side of things now. Let's talk about the employee side. Uh, From an employee's perspective, how have the employees' expectations of leaders changed?
0: I think there's definitely more expectation now that leaders will be accountable not just for their decisions but for their behaviour and for the... Mm kind of culture they set in the organization and for the environment they set. And this comes down to things like the Me Too movement, like the, the complete, you know, and that, that was a long time coming. But I think we've now seen just a huge change in expectations of senior leaders to set a work environment that's safe for everybody. And often, you know, just so frequently that safe environment is not there, and it's it's now a scandal rather than an expectation that it just kind of happens. So, yeah. I think that's that's definitely something that all leaders need to think of. And I mean, yeah, my, my previous experience with Oxfam, I'd left Oxfam when this all all happened. But I mean, Oxfam had a major scandal in Haiti. One of the um, emergency responses, there was like some pretty horrific kind of sexual abuse stuff that was going on that really, really affected the organization. It was a small number of people, but it was just totally unacceptable and horrible and the blowback on the organization. And it was massive for funding, Mm. for reputation, for everything. So everything that that organization had worked so hard to build up was diminished instantly by by that. And I think there is an expectation for, for leaders to be really managing well in this space to make sure that you know, everybody, not just the staff, not just employees, but all of the people touched by your organisation, safe and and respected and supported. So yeah, I think that's a good change in terms of expectations of leaders.
1: Yeah, yeah, very good. And it's amazing how I, I hear this sometimes over the years that, oh, you know, we, we're in New Zealand or we're in Australia, but it's just small compared to the global organisation that It's not going to make much of a difference. And you go like, sometimes it does and they go what do you mean i go well you think about it at night time when you're trying to sleep and you've got this little mosquito in the room how how much of an impact does that little mosquito have and they go like ah, oh, darn you're right." <laughs> Seriously. so it does right so something small can have
0: a... impact
1: <laughs> exactly absolutely yeah hey um so this fast-paced ever-changing world what makes a leader successful today in the fast-paced ever-changing world what's your thoughts
0: I think having, obviously, adaptability and flexibility, you need to be able to pivot on a dime at the moment. I think COVID's really shown us that. I mean, Talent Beyond Boundaries is an organisation that helps refugees to migrate for work. We're in the middle of a global pandemic and it's you know severely affected the economies around the world. Obviously, we've had to adapt extremely quickly to that reality. And you know i think the organizations that are highly bureaucratic and have very rigid systems have found it very very difficult to do that whereas for us it was really easy like all of the our all of our people have a very kind of flexible adaptable mindset they're not wedded to their position descriptions can't step out of that because that would be not within line with what I've you know They none of our people have that mindset and I'm so incredibly grateful that they don't because it's what's given us an edge and ability to adapt to change very quickly and I think yeah that's that's absolutely vital for leaders to set that tone and to set that culture in an organization so that all of the staff have that approach as well If you at the top are like, you know, I will only work between these hours and I will only do these set tasks and everyone must fill out this form to do, you know, if you have that kind of approach, you're going to set the culture of the organization like that. And, you know, then you're absolutely stuffed when it comes to a a major change in the environment that you're working in. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a technical term, stuffed. Stuffed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But but you're so right, Steph, because you will be stuff. You'll be yeah, absolutely. It will not go well for you. And it may take a little bit of time, but it will be very hard for that organization and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. um so so need to pivot on a dime. I love I love that, right? Because um, you know, that's what we need to do. And I think that those organizations, what we've found in COVID is that looking at organizations, those that have really good trust within the organization, a like really strong culture of that trust. They've been able to pivot on that dime very quickly. Exactly. Ones who haven't, it's taken a while for them to get through it, and it's been very difficult for, for that to happen.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: So I'm going to ask you to get your crystal ball out now and start thinking about the future here. So where do you see leadership being in five years?
0: I think it's very hard to have a crystal ball about anything at the moment. With um, if if I if you asked me this question five years ago, I'd probably be just shocked and appalled at where we are at the moment, but I hope you know one of the good things that I think has started to happen, you know, if I look at if I look back at my first kind of role in like a leadership position in the nonprofit world, my boss was a white man, his boss was a white man, his boss was a white man and the CEO was a white man and that was at, you know, an international humanitarian organization. <laughs> yep. Which is, you know, kind of crazy really when you think about it. Now that I do not think that would happen. Gender equality is much further advanced. But where we are now really is in trying to develop a more racially diverse and, you know, inclusive of people of different backgrounds, different d- disabilities, not only in junior parts of the organisation, but right up the top. And I think there's a long way we have to go to get racial diversity in particular and boards and in leadership teams and really kind of decolonize these institutions from the top because, and that's something that, you know, I hope, and I'm excited for the world when, when that happens. And I hope this next five years is going to see a real shift in that. And I think as a leader, I mean, you know, probably when I started out, I was thinking like, I've got to get into the space because I'm a young woman and I need to get into the space for me. And now it's like, no, I'm a privileged person and i've got to try and create space for other people who don't have that and that's actually the responsibility that i have now and it's yeah i think you see leaders adopting that approach more and more and it's really because of fantastic work of activists and advocates and leaders of a range of different backgrounds but yep. people of color kind of pushing this where it needs to go which is really great
1: Yeah. in One of my previous episodes, I spoke with a guy um, who was Neil Milliken is his name, and um, he works for a large corporate, but he he talks about a lot of organizations, talk about diversity and inclusion and so forth. And the Hewlett Packard, when I was there, we actually swapped it around. We actually Mm -hmm. went inclusion first and then diversity because there wasn't been given enough focus Focus. at one stage. But the thing that he talks about is that we talk about the the male female the gender of side of things and then we also talk about the the ethnic side of things as well but one area that's been left some organisations give lip service to it is the disability side of 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 it as well and it's really quite amazing to to hear his story about that side of things as well so based on what you've said and based on what he said it'd be really interesting to see where this is going to go over the next five years for sure so yeah we'll absolutely. we'll see where it goes
0: yeah absolutely.
1: Yeah. Hey Steph, thank you for joining us on today's show. If our listeners are wanting to get hold of you, where should they go?
0: So our website is talentbeyondboundaries.org and you can, you can reach us on there. You can reach out to me from our email that's posted there or I also have the website make refuge, um, M-A-K-E-R-E-F-U-G-E.org and that's where I've, I write about refugee related policy issues. So you can also reach out to me there.
1: Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes. But Steph, once again, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. It's been a lot of fun. So thanks for being here with us.
0: Thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks for having me and for uh, generating these really needed conversations about leadership. I think it's great.
1: Thank you. Hey, listeners, what we as leaders know to be true is that change is constant. Change is incredibly scary, especially with the unknown and the unfamiliar territory. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing. Look out for the episodes as they've been released. Download them, have a listen, put a review, a rating, and share them with your friend, your family, your network. If there's any feedback you'd like to give me on the show or if there's a question you'd like to give me to ask my guests as I interview them, or if there is a question that you have for the Ask Dennis episode, feel free to send me an email, Dennis, at leadingchangepartners.com. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in. Until next time, bye for now.